Hey everyone. It's a joy to be back with you, having been on holidays. It's a joy, isn't it, to open the scriptures together each week. Keep your Bibles open at John 7, and you'll see on the outline roughly where we're heading. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the words and the works of our Lord Jesus. We praise and thank you that we have them written down for us in the pages of our Bibles. Lord, please help us now to wrestle with them, to be convicted of them, and to turn in faith to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes I wonder if Jesus ever felt lonely. Up until last year for me, I can't really remember a time where I battled with loneliness. I never really dealt with it over my life. I never felt lonely. I always felt like I had people around me. But then last year came along, good old 2017. With all my voice and my health issues, the treatments, the discomforts, the slow recovery, the unmet expectations, the complications, they all mounted until eventually I felt lonely. I wasn't lonely because I was alone. Far from it. I had the incredible love and support of you, my church, as well as my family, most of all Sarah. And even more than that, I had the very presence of God, His Spirit in me. I knew I wasn't alone, but I felt lonely. I felt lonely because it felt like that no one, could really, underst- no one really understood me, which was literally true because I couldn't speak to you. But also, I felt like no one really understood what I was going through. Even though I knew that people did, and I was able to explain myself, just not with words, I felt lonely. It was the first time I've really ever battled with loneliness so far. And though it was relatively short, it wasn't pleasant. The reason I bring this up is not to draw attention to myself or to get you to feel sorry for me. But because my experience of loneliness, it just makes me wonder if Jesus experienced loneliness. It makes me wonder what Jesus might have been going through at this part of John's gospel, for example. Did he feel lonely? Do you remember where we left off in chapter 6 a few weeks ago? In chapter 6, Jesus does this impossible miracle. He feeds 5,000 people plus men, sorry, plus women and children, with five loaves and two fish. The crowd love him. They follow him. They love the miracle worker who gives them free bread. But then Jesus does something that they don't like. He opens his mouth. He opens his mouth and he says, I am the bread of life. He opens his mouth and says, anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. The people don't like it. We get this verse at the end of chapter 66, this turning point in John's gospel, this sad moment, verse 60. His disciples, so-called, say, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? They judged him. 
They weighed his works and his words and they said, how can this man claim these things for himself? Who does he think he is? And so verse 66, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. They loved his miracle. They loved their fill of bread. But Jesus' words offended them. They wouldn't accept his teaching and believe in him. All of a sudden, Jesus finds himself alone. Perhaps with only the twelve with him. And I just wonder if he felt loneliness at that point. Don't you? I don't know if he did or not. He says at another place, he is never alone. The Father is always with him. But I just wonder, did he feel lonely? And whether or not Jesus felt lonely, he very much was alone. So many of his so-called disciples deserted him. And so the question that hangs in the balance as we come into chapter 7 is, what will happen? What will Jesus do now that so many disciples have left him? And then we see from now on, the next few chapters, people just keep judging Jesus. They weigh his words and works and they don't want anything to do with him. And on that sad note, let's get into our passage, chapter 7. Keep your Bibles open, have a look at verse 1. Where is Jesus? Well, Jesus decides to stay around in Galilee. He keeps away from Judea, Jerusalem, the center of the Israelite people. Why? Because the Jewish leaders, they want to kill him. Why are they trying to kill him? Well, because his work, because of his works, but also and especially because of his words. Because last time he was in Jerusalem, back in chapter 5, two Passovers ago, it was the Sabbath and he healed someone. And then even worse, he said, God is my Father. And so they judged him. They weighed his words and they said, he is worthy of death. So Jesus, he keeps a low profile in Galilee, staying away from Judea. But then look at verse 2. The Jewish festival of tabernacles was near. So one of the major Jewish festivals was coming up when all the Jews from around the countryside would head up to Jerusalem to sacrifice to God. And this festival is the festival of tabernacles or booths. Israel would come up to Jerusalem and they would live in little tabernacles, tents or booths all around the city. And this festival had two meanings. First of all, it was a celebration and a thanksgiving to God, thanking Him for the harvest, the harvest of fruit. They would praise God for His provision of food. And the other reason we saw in Leviticus before, it was a reminder that God had wonderfully and powerfully saved Israel out of Egypt, and so they had to live in tents as they traveled to the promised land. So this festival was near. Countless thousands would converge on Jerusalem to celebrate God's provision and salvation. Then, we get in verse 3, Jesus' brothers talk to him. And as usual, Jesus' blood relatives, they don't really understand him. They don't really get him. They don't really like him. Verse 3. His brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, so your disciples can see your works that you are doing. Sounds like good advice, doesn't it? 
If you want to make a name for yourself, go up to where the party's at, you know? But if you look at verse 5, even his brothers did not believe in him. And they're not genuine in their encouragement, are they? They're mocking him almost. They say, Jesus, if you're someone special, if you really are doing these miracles, go and do them up there. That's where you'll get a following. What are you doing hanging around at home for? They judge him. They weigh his works and his words and they go, he's a lonely fool. Why would we believe in him? Now, Jesus could very easily attract a crowd at a festival, right? But they don't get what he is on about, do they? He's not on about gathering a crowd for the hype. He's on about people having genuine faith in him. And they don't know that the Jews are trying to kill him. So he says, verse 6, My time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me, because I testify about it, that its deeds are evil. You see what he's saying? He says, the world doesn't hate you because you're just like the world. The world can't hate you because you're no different to the world. You can go up to the festival anytime you want. But Jesus says, no, they hate me. Why do they hate Jesus? Look at verse 7 again. Because he testifies. Because he speaks. Because his words His teaching is what they don't like. The world judges Jesus. They weigh his words and say, we hate him. Jesus testifies to the world, your deeds are evil. He tells it how it is. He says, this world is sinful. And he even points out individual people's sin to them. For example, the religious leaders when he rebukes them. And he says, I am the only way to God. I'm the only way you can be saved from your sin. And so the world hates that, don't they? This is why, by the way, I've been a little disturbed by the events of the last week. Ever since the royal wedding last Saturday night, who watched it, who enjoyed it? You you might not put your hand up for both of those things. I don't know. Since the royal wedding last week, what has everyone been talking about? Lots of different things, but mainly the sermon, right? It's been in all the news headlines, and everyone's saying, we loved it. It was inspirational, it was passionate, it was powerful. All the world loved this sermon. Even atheists are saying, that was really good. Almost no one has anything bad to say about it, except it was a bit long. But Jesus here says the world hates him. This is the running theme of the New Testament, isn't it? This is what we keep seeing in John's Gospel. The world hates Jesus and his disciples. Paul's message is that the message of the cross is foolishness to the world. It's the stench of death. People hate Jesus and his words. And so we should be wary that the world loved this sermon. We should take a close look at what it said and what it didn't say. Because if it did, in fact, preach the true gospel of Jesus, the one who says, the world's works are evil, the one who says, my death for you is the only way you can be saved. If he proclaimed that true gospel of love, 
then the world would have reacted differently, I think. Many more would have hated him. Jesus is hated because of his words, isn't he? Because he testifies that the world is evil. This is why the Jewish leaders are trying to kill him, because of his words. And so Jesus says to his brothers, back to the story, in verse 8, I'm not going up to the festival. Why? Because my time has not yet fully come. He's saying, I'm not going up to the festival to dazzle the crowds like you say I should. And he's saying, it's not good timing for me right now because people want to kill me. And I need to be careful. It's not the right time for me to die yet. I will go to the cross in a few years' time. And so he stays in Galilee. But not for very long, does he? Did you notice? The next part of the passage, he goes up to the festival. And we see more people judging Jesus there. So look at the next part of the passage, starting at verse 10. After his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly, but secretly. Now, I don't know about you, but does this verse confuse you? Because what did Jesus just say he was not going to do? Go up to the festival. And in the very next verse, he says, I'm going up to the festival. Is Jesus lying? Is he being deceitful here? Well, no, he's not. And here's two ways that we could think about it. It's possible that Jesus changed his mind. Jesus was a human. Jesus experienced life in many of the ways that we did. He got hungry and tired. He had to think about things. Maybe he changed his mind. Like we sometimes do, and we're not lying. We just change our minds. But actually, I think the better way to understand this is actually that Jesus was saying to his brothers, I'm not going up to, do, to the festival now. I'm not going up yet, and I'm definitely not going up in the way that you want me to. I'm not going to dazzle the crowds like you say I should. He wanted to distance himself from his brother's expectations of him. And he knew that the Jews would be looking for him, so he decides to go quietly to not make a scene. So up he goes, secretly, not to be deceitful, but to avoid the attention of the Jewish leaders. Which is just as well, because if you look at verse 11, the Jews were looking for him. They were saying, where is he? It might sound innocent, but I don't think it is. They have sinister intent. They want to catch him in his words. They want to do away with him. Well, then we also get to see the response of the crowds in the next few verses. Imagine it for a moment. We're at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. There's hustle and bustle everywhere as thousands of people converge on Jerusalem. There's men, there's women, there's children, there's livestock, there's marketplaces everywhere. And everyone is setting up their little tent to stay in over the week. Then look at verse 12. Everybody is talking about Jesus. What do they say about him? How do they judge him? Well, they're divided. Some say he's a good man. Look at the miracles that he does. Listen to his teaching. It's powerful. It's intriguing. He must be a good man. But then on the flip side, you get people saying, no. On the contrary, he's deceiving the people. Jesus came into conflict with the Jewish teachers. And so they judged him. They weighed his words and said, he's a deceiver. He doesn't say what the Jewish leaders say. 
He's leading people astray. But all this is happening in whispers. Because, verse 13, the people feared the Jews. They didn't want to be questioned and condemned. They didn't want to be kicked out of the temple or the synagogue. And so all this commotion is going on. And in the midst of this, Jesus finally shows up. Let's look at the next part of the passage. It starts at verse 14. When the festival was already half over, Jesus went up into the temple complex and began to teach. So rather than making a grand entrance with his entourage, with trumpet noise, Jesus chooses to simply and quietly come up halfway through. It was like a seven or eight day festival, so it's probably day four or five at this point. But it's what he comes to do that is worth noting. What does he do? He went up to the, to the temple complex, the heart of the festival, and began to teach. No miracles, no signs, just his teaching. His words, his words that yet again get people upset with him. So look at verse 15. The Jews are amazed. They ask, how does he know the scriptures? He hasn't been trained by any of the rabbis. How on earth could he understand the scriptures so well? You see, they're questioning his credentials. For the Jews, unless you were trained up by a rabbi, you weren't worth listening to. And unless you appealed to the rabbis in your teaching, well, you were just making up your own ideas, weren't you? You were presumptuous. You were thinking you were better than everyone else before you. It's like referencing in an essay. Who loves essays? You, you love essays, don't you? Jewish teachers had to reference they had to reference other rabbis to back themselves up. And so they judge Jesus. They weigh his words and they say, he's untrained. He is a presumer. Who is this guy? He has no training. He doesn't have a rabbi. He doesn't back up his teaching. He's just making stuff up. Where does he get it from? But now, and this is really the best part of the passage, Jesus steps into the ring. He puts the gloves on. And he comes out wailing. It's just, it's really good. Look at verse 16. He ramps it up like 10 notches. Jesus answered them, My teaching isn't mine, but is from the one who sent me. You see what he's saying? He's saying, you want to know where I get my teaching from? Do you want to know who my rabbi is? My teaching comes from God in heaven. My rabbi is my father, the God of the universe. See the outrageous claim that Jesus made. He says, I don't speak on my own. I can back myself up. And I don't back myself up with any word of man. No, my teaching comes from God. He sent me to speak his word. And then in verse 17, he turns it back on them. He says, if you really wanted to do God's will, if you really knew him and lived for him, you would know that I was speaking his words. You would believe me. You would know my teaching comes from him. Jesus just keeps blowing their minds. His words, his claims, they're outrageous. God is my father. He sent me to speak his words. My teaching comes straight from him. 
you can see why they were like, he's a deceiver, can't he? Because if it wasn't true, Jesus was a blasphemous liar. But if it was true, if he was actually speaking God's words, then he's the opposite of a deceiver, isn't he? Jesus says it in verse 18. He talks about himself. He says, He who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. Jesus says, My words, my character is true, faithful, blameless. There is no unrighteousness in me. Outrageous claim after outrageous claim from Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in the next part of the passage to rebuke them. Verse 19, he says, You love Moses, don't you? You love the law that he gave you. So why do you break it by trying to murder me? This leads us into the last part. Let's look at verse 20. The crowd say, You're crazy, Jesus. You must be demon-possessed. Who wants to kill you? Now, either they don't know that the Jewish leaders want to kill him, or they're playing dumb. And they're like, oh, we don't know what what you're talking about, Jesus. But really, they do. And so Jesus, he just keeps going at them. Look at verse 21. He reminds them of the time when they last saw him in Jerusalem. Back in chapter 5, when he worked on the Sabbath. He healed a paralyzed man a work that they judged him for. They weighed his works and they said, he is a lawbreaker. He's working on the Sabbath when we are commanded to rest. But then Jesus, he turns it back on them again. Look over verses 22 and 23. He says, if you can circumcise a baby on the Sabbath, that's the ritual that they did on the eighth day of a baby's life. If you can do that on the Sabbath, how can you be angry at me for healing a whole man's body on the Sabbath? See what he's saying? He's saying it's not breaking the law to do good and to heal on the Sabbath. He says, you guys do that when you circumcise a baby, don't you? You've got it wrong. He rebukes them for their legalistic view of the world. So look at verse 24. He puts it in plain words. Stop judging according to outward appearances, rather judge according to righteous judgment. The Jews were judging Jesus outwardly, legalistically. They cared more about following the rules than they cared more about the outward show of religion. More than they cared about the inward heart towards God. This is what Jesus' brothers were doing, isn't it? They judged him outwardly. They thought he, could, he, should, he should put an outward sign on, show on. Do some miracles. Gather a new crowd of disciples. They judged him for a fool. For not doing things their way. The religious leaders do the same. Jesus doesn't fit their picture of a godly man, of a righteous teacher. They judge him as a lawbreaker. They hate him. They want to kill him for upsetting the status quo. Jesus says, stop judging in this way. 
Instead, judge according to righteous judgment. What is righteous judgment? It's judging according to what is right, isn't it? What is actually godly. It's judging not according to your standards, but His. It's weighing things against His Word and what it actually says. Not the traditions of the elders or the rabbis. And if they did this, if they actually weighed his words, actually weighed his deeds, if they actually wanted to follow God, live for him, they would see that Jesus' teaching, his words, his works, they fit together with the Old Testament perfectly. They would see and understand Jesus doesn't speak on his own. Instead, he speaks from God, from the one who sent him. His Father. This crowd of people, this world, they judge Jesus, don't they? And I think this leads us to the question that this passage asks us. To finish off, I want us to think about how do we judge Jesus? When you weigh his words and his works, what do you conclude? Jesus well judged him as a fool, as a deceiver, as a presumer, a lawbreaker. The Jews weighed his works and his words and said, we hate him. What they should have seen is that Jesus' words carry the authority and the weight of the glory of God. His words carry the power and truth of the living God. He is God's mouthpiece sent by God to speak His words. Our Lord is truly amazing. His words, His teaching, are the only words that come straight from the Father. This is what they should have seen. And so how do we judge Jesus? How do you judge Jesus? Do you believe His words? Do you weigh His words and say, What the disciples said in chapter 6, Jesus, your words are the words of eternal life. Where else can we go? Do you say what the crowd said? These words are too hard to accept. If you are not someone who believes in Jesus, then the invitation is here today, now, to look at Jesus' words for yourself. To weigh them. To put his words on the scale and weigh them up. To read them. Really wrestle with them. And test them and see if they are from God. Let us do that with you. We would love to. Because our prayer is that you would see the beauty of his words and say they come from God. The one true God. But for most of us here who have accepted Jesus' words, who believe in him, we need to ask ourselves, what place do his words, his teaching have in our lives? Do we treasure his words? Do we pay daily attention to them, meditating on them day and night? Do they take the highest place in our hearts and minds? Do his words govern our decisions, big and small? Are his words... On our lips, not in a shallow token way, but meaningfully, as we speak his words into our own lives and each other's.
and to those around us. How much do we need to repent of forgetting Jesus' words, ignoring them, not having time for them? Brothers and sisters, if Jesus' words come straight from God the Father, if they are the revelation of his character and purpose, his holiness, his power, his greatness, his mercy, compassion and kindness, if that's what they are, aren't they worth our full attention, our daily meditation? Let's give Jesus' words the highest place in our hearts and minds and treasure them above all. Let's judge Jesus rightly, with righteous judgment. Let's weigh his words and say they come straight from God the Father. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you again for the works and the words of our Lord Jesus. Father, we praise and thank you that his words came from you. That as he spoke from your scriptures, and that as he spoke the words that you gave him, that he revealed you to us. Your love, your power, your holiness, and your kindness and forgiveness. Father, please help us to meditate on his words daily and treasure them, giving them the highest place in our hearts and minds. And we pray in Jesus' name, these words of prayer. Amen.